Hello, and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Socks. And I'm Lori Socks. And today we are talking about hope and the next generation. And I think that's like a Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, it does sound <laughs> I like. I think that's like a combination of a Star Trek and a Star Wars title. I was thinking about this after we spoke on a season of hope and having hope and the importance of hope and actually how hope is something that only exists when we are working or believing in something better. Mm -hmm. If we've settled for this is how it's going to be, then hope isn't really a factor in that journey. We're just there. When I make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I know the bread and the jelly and the jam, and I know what... It is that I'm creating and it's something familiar to me. It's something that I don't think needs to change. And so I don't go into making my peanut butter and jelly sandwich and saying, oh, I'm, I have so much hope for this peanut butter and jelly sandwich because I know what it's going to be and I'm happy with that. <laughs> so does, yeah. do you know what I mean? Well, like, if we I, think of advocacy as trying to see a change or trying to work on a change, then hope is an ingredient in advocacy when there's a change needing to be made. Right, you see hope, the change. Hope could be there. Right, you 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 show up. The definition of advocacy is to show up, but you show up with hope of changing it. And and I was thinking about what that journey has been for us over the last thirteen years, and when we started on this journey, we came to it as who we were. <laughs> That's the only thing you can do, right? You you are this compilation of experiences and beliefs and thoughts and fears and all of those things. So that's how we we came into this journey. And the reason I wanted to talk about the hope that I have for the new generation is because with every generation, we are learning and growing and changing. And that gives me great hope. You know, it's been almost 13 years since Liam was born and everything about Liam has been this beautiful adventure. Even the challenges, you know, I curse that list that they give us at the beginning. And I think, it, and I know it's because the way they give it to us and they also don't really help row the boat. They just give you this list. Like <laughs> and a generic list. Like a generic list mm-hmm. of all these things that could happen and they don't give it to us for our daughter. So that was more, to be honest, that was our journey with Sophia has really been more of an unknown than our journey with Liam. We knew for certain that we wanted Sophia to have a sibling. And before Liam was born, we miscarried, which was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking for us and... um and I just wish that as a society, there was more discussion about it. Because, And I think there is now, but for families who suffered that loss, it wasn't really honored as a loss. And I just remember <laughs> being expected to just like 
go to work the next day and it wasn't it it was a loss it's very common it's very common very common and, and it's something that is so common and to not talk about it and is you know weird it it makes me sad because i have friends who will talk to me and they'll say they miscarried or they'll confide in me and when i tell them i'm so sorry it's almost follow always like a, a knee-jerk reaction of oh it's okay it's good. And that's, that's, but that's, you mean, what, that's the response. Yeah. Like right. that's because the, I remember just like, I, that's kind of what we're, we're, um, expected to do as women. We're just, that's just something that we're expected to do. Brush I, it off, suck it up, brush it off and continue. And, but I honestly think that as a society, we could honor grief and those feelings a little bit more in our society as a whole. Uh, I think it's a healthier thing to be able, I, I think that I mean, we've had conversations about grief and, and um, that's different episodes, but on a little sidebar, I do think that we, we should honor our journey and our life more and the times that we grief that that's a valid, very valid, real feeling that I, I feel like needs to be honored and felt. And it was the people who understood were the ones who comforted me at that time and they helped me grieve my loss. But that's what community does for each other. You know, a community, like uh, people with a like, a, com a commonality form a community and that's, we can understand. And that's really what this community has been is we understand that the journey we're on. And so we comfort each other. We give each other insight. We lift each other is relaying our experiences so that it's not just it's as not much so, of an unknown for... It's not so lonely. Yeah. Like, I feel like when we know that we're together, when we know that there's someone else, then it's, it, I don't, it just lifts it a little bit. It, we see other people have gotten through or how they've handled a challenge and it does. It helps you navigate the unknown to know that, okay, we may not know, but we're going to do this. We're going to do it. And not to downplay... This, this subject, but we were just talking together about uh, some volunteer work you're doing at school and that you were coordinating some meals for the week for the kids and you decided to write it all down and kind of make a template for the next time you do it or the next time someone else has to do it. And that's kind of what a community can do is kind of at least build a, a, a universal template on different things of like, this is maybe a direction you can go after you feel this or, or experience something. And, and just to see other people's experiences so that you can see maybe what worked, what didn't, or, or, or get a better idea for yourself. It's what all those apps started to do where they would say, you know, they just gather information and give you information. <laughs> and I mean, they were a success because people wanted the information. It, it is that sense of community and, and not isolation. Uh, it's because I believe that it is the misperceived disconnection from each other uh, that we think exists. Mm -hmm. If we understood, if we always remembered that we are all connected in life, we would just support each other. There'd be more love in the world. Yeah. There'd be, care there'd be less more. fear. We'd care. There'd be more love and less fear. And we'd care about each other, which is as far as life goes, as far as this finite amount of time that we have, I think it would make the journey better for everyone. 
I'm very sensitive to it because my daughter's in a play of Our Town and I've never seen the entire play. And to be honest, I've watched the movie in bits and pieces, but there's something about this production and the way it's being directed. The whole thing gets to me about the frailty of life. And as you're experiencing it, you kind of not sometimes nonchalant about it or Yeah, take it that's for actually part of part of this one little monologue but the one thing that the first line is now you see what it is to be alive and that line is like we are we're alive here the best thing that we can do is love and support each other and like you said thinking of other people and who's and that we're connected you know our stories are all connected and we don't know how they're connected well I mean the truth is most of the time in our lifetime we don't know how our stories touch other people and change lives. We, we don't know a, a recipe that we left in three generations may, you know, be mm-hmm. someone's favorite dish at their holiday party. Like we don't know, but that is the gift of life. That is the power that we have. And that is the power of community. That's, that's, I'm just imagining <laughs> like uh, great, great grandma Lori <laughs> with like, her. I don't even know what my with her recipe, and I'm not sure what it'll be. Co- you have a lot of coffee good press. I don't know. <laughs> Here's her coffee. She used to make breath. her coffee Woo. this way. Um, but yeah, no. So, you know, it was that support of the community around me at that time that lifted me. And uh, when we found out then when we were pregnant with Liam, I think that right off the bat, there was already, it was already grounded in this complete understanding of what a gift that was. And I didn't take it for granted. At the same time, there was this heightened sense of fear that didn't exist with Sophia. And that fear came because I understood and had experienced that loss already, that, that extreme loss. And so the fear, I can look back now, and that fear wasn't really based in the moment that was at hand. It was based in a loss that yeah, I had experienced. It was based in the past. That fear can limit us and has limited us in so many ways on this particular journey, even. How would we, how would we have experienced Down syndrome, that what Down syndrome is, if we didn't have a bit of fear based there and wondering if we're going to do this right or how others are going to think about it? Like, I don't know all the things. It's very personal. But, man, if we just relaxed and lived in the moment, how I might have viewed Down syndrome differently from the very beginning. Yeah, well, I think fear, it's not based in complete reality or the presence. It's just a fear of the unknown. And we're, we're kind of fed. No, we're not kind of. We are fed fear mm-hmm. from the onset when we've discussed that. Yeah, fear is like the, the, the fear of what could happen. But so much heightened in, in our experience with Liam than with Sophia, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, so, yeah. so heightened. Yes. But the same cycle repeated itself. We had a loss and then we found out we were pregnant. That pregnancy, Liam's pregnancy was different. It was affected by what we had experienced. And there was such a, um, I was so meticulous in everything. Whereas like with Sophia, I think I taught a spin class when I, when I was eight months pregnant, like I didn't, I was so naive, you know, to, to any kind of challenge that could exist. So then when he was born early, he was born 75 days early. I had the perspective of that when his diagnosis came, all we could focus on was 
the fight he had in front of him. And it wasn't until uh, we we acknowledged that there was a shift in the room. We heard the words of the geneticist who told us we could have taken a test and all of those things like we heard and saw and felt. But it wasn't until after that 75 days after uh, he was released from the hospital (laughs) on that morning. I mean, it was it was right at the wire. It wasn't we didn't know going to bed if we were going to get him the next day. And I think it had been postponed a few days. Yeah, a couple of days. A couple mm-hmm. days. We'd go in, no, not today. And we come back, you know, the next day we go in and we'd sit there and we'd be like, Liam, like, we, we just take hope home? every moment there was, um, at the same time, like all he needed was a little bit more strength to hold his neck or to uh, remove that tube. He just needed to take a little swallow on his own, like these little things. And at the time I can say that it was this, weight and fear. But looking back, I can say what a gift that I was so in tune with my child's development. I was so in tune very early on with every accomplishment. And that if you're just on the beginning of this journey, that is such a gift. Because you know, as parents of Sophia, she did all these miraculous milestones and they were not given the credence that they deserved. They were not as celebrated. We would be like, Oh, she's got that. Now what's next? Whereas I feel like with Liam, even now, like, (laughs) like yesterday, yeah, just this weekend, we came home we were going to watch a movie, but Sophia, we have this thing in our house where we take turns. And since Sophia had been working all day, we were like, okay, Sophia gets to pick. So Stephen, so Liam came out with what he wanted to watch his pick because his iPad had died. And so now he's like, Oh, what do you guys got here? Let me tell you what I want to watch. And I, and I told him, I said, Liam, it's Sophia's pick. And he looked at me with a look I've never really seen before from him, but from my daughter many times. He was like, mm-hmm. And it kind of like, I'll be right back. And he walked into our bedroom where Stephen was. And he came back out and he was like, dad said I could watch. And he told, and I was like, did he just go in? He and, asked me if he could watch, you know, the program he wanted to watch. And, I was and like, it was oh, one well, of those. Maybe, let's see. And he's like, yeah, okay. And he walked out and was like, dad says good. And it was one of those things like, ask mom, mom doesn't say so. So ask dad. And mm-hmm. at the same time, I was like, Liam, that's not how it works. And I explained to him. And then I looked at Stephen. Is and manipulation Sophia. a milestone? Yeah. I looked at, <laughs> I looked at Stephen and Sophia and I was like, but really great milestone. Right. Like, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, she's never done that before to have that. Like, all right, well, now I'm going to get what I want, which is uh, so many things. So anyway, those, uh, this is 13, this is almost 13 years. Now some of this could be celebrating, you know, you celebrate, oh wait, you're saying you celebrate Liam more? I think we, more. we we see and celebrate his milestones yeah. more. Like we do. We're just so I, I was, highly aware. I was going to say maybe that's something for a second child too, but maybe I was, because I was thinking, oh, you're relaxed. You're just kind of like, no, all right. I, infamously, but, but the second honestly, and third child are like, get praise. no, they get like, <laughs> oh Yeah. Yeah, what it's is. been done, but I, so just, that is such a gift looking back where if we, if we knew then that those things would be actual little gifts for us, but when he was released uh, from the hospital, 75 days later, I think that's when we took our first breath. And when I mean our first breath, that's when we were like, he's alive. Okay. 
Now, what was that you said about an extra chromosome? Mm, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think like, what what is that? And that was when the stereotypes and the misperceptions began to sink in. Yeah, that's probably when our advocacy started. As yeah, well. that's when I think that's when the fight started to sink in because already we were being we were being um, just bombarded with that onslaught of quest of of statements that really didn't coincide with the fact that my child had just spent seventy five days in the NICU fighting for his life and had come out on the other end. And that was to be celebrated because I know that not every parent gets that celebration and my heart goes out to them. So in that moment, when we started to get bombarded with this negativity, I remember us digging our heels in and knowing that we were going to celebrate him. But we were different people 13 years ago. We were a product of our life that we had lived and, and the society that we were brought up in, in the eighties. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're Look always back at evolving, any films so. from the eighties and you see just like the prejudice and discrimination and the lack of inclusion and the way disabilities were looked at the oh, way yeah. ev- there mean, was so, so much inequality, so much, I mean, so much so inequality. Much. And to be honest, like disability is, is on the last of that list. Society was different. I mean, people, you, you notice that like when it comes to discrimination, disability, I feel like there's almost an expectancy that it's, there's inequality. Like we fight when we see inequality and we fight against inequality for every marginalized group. But when it comes to disability, I feel like as parents, we're expected to just accept that our child is not equal. Mm. That's like, it's just like a, a thing like, oh, well, why are you at this party? <laughs> like, why are you at the party for inclusion? Why are you at the party for this is dis- why is disability here? You you aren't equal. Like, I feel like that's what what was given to us. That was spoon fed to us until really recent years, because I know that when Liam was born, that's those were the messages that were out there. That was the those were the books and the videos and the articles that were given us. So right? Society in general usually is like there's a pecking order of change and disability seems to be lower on that rung. And you're kind of told each rung is kind of told, wait your turn, wait your turn. And it could be, you know, race and women's movement and equality and different sexualities and then disabilities just kind of like this um, kind of an afterthought. It wasn't even, not even, yeah, like, no, absolutely. For us, when it came to fighting for equality with disability, there was always that question of why are you here? Yeah. Why are you wanting more? Why do you think it should be different? And that was in society. And that was definitely in our fight for an education. In society, I remember early on, before Liam went to school, meeting parents of children with Down syndrome who had adult children. I remember this one woman in particular in a craft store who approached me. She actually used the R word to describe her child. It was, it was just very um, matter of fact that he wasn't educated. And I remember saying to her, you know, you, you don't have to use that word anymore. And talking about some of the hopes for my child, she apologized 
later for, because she knew, she said, I know that that's not the right word and I know it's not used anymore. And then she just said, but that's just what they did when my son was little. That's just what they called it. In the community, a lot of times there's conversations about how we speak. And it's very important how we speak about our our children. But I think it's also as a community to honor that people have had different paths. So if someone uses if someone uses a word that we don't use, if someone speaks in limits over their child, it's just a product of the life and their experience that they have had. We can encourage, we can use guiding words, but I think that judging them, we don't want them to feel any more guilt. We don't need to make people feel bad for what they came through. I remember looking at that woman with such empathy and love and feeling so much pain for her that she actually went through her son's life using the R word when she referred to him. And she didn't use it in like us the way that like people use it in a hurtful way. It was almost like mm-hmm. saying, that's my son. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just a word. It was just the adjective used when describing there's my my son is a sixth grader my son is 12 my son is tall like that's that's how she used it but he was 40 years old and so he would have come up through the 70s and back then you just that's just what you just accepted what society gave you especially with disabilities we do that now too i mean that's that's what a lot of our advocacy is you know where do we put our trust or who do we listen to or, or when do we, but we know better now when you look back historically, there's so many times, like I was looking at over the last break, like we watched different movies or watch different programs. And I look back on any situation that now we have this hindsight of the inappropriateness of the situation, the abuse that was there. And usually in the story, the victim was, expressing to us the reality but as a society we didn't listen we go along yeah but I think because it's hard I think it's hard because then you have to accept what is allowed and then when I look back at those stories it just I think the hard stuff is hard to admit but unless we admit it then we cannot change we have to admit that it exists in order to change it period. And uh, it's been happening all along, little by little. And the people who have like spearheaded those activisms and advocacies, I mean, I look at their bravery and their strength and uh, their courage to do that because for the most part, they were doing it. It was a very small group. Mm -hmm. It was a very small group of people who hunkered down on the steps to fight for our education and for the rights that we've been given. And they took a lot of flack. They took the flack for people. And they were actually individuals with disability and the things that they were subjected to that an able-bodied person would not be subjected to, like access to a bathroom while mm-hmm. when, when you're having a sit-in. They had even bigger challenges. Man, change is hard to come by. Right. Even when you know the change needs to be made, society is just slow. I was just thinking about for decades, society knew smoking was bad for you. 
for decades, doctors were like, oh, yeah, well. Uh. It's good. I mean. But you, people did it because it was just. Because also they, they were everyone told. Everyone did it. But they were told this is good for your nerves. This will help your speech impediments. They this were, is like. There were that too. But there even, was when they, even when they were told, okay, there's really not a lot there that's good for you. It was more of like, yeah, but. And then it slowly became. Now we're at a place where it's almost the opposite. People almost shun for it. But. It's a slow change. That's a good example because you're thinking you're talking about that once it's a vice, once it's a habit, once it's an addiction. Yeah, once it's a once it's something that is just taken. But that's just like any bad any anything that we do that's self destructive, anything that we do that doesn't move us along in our journey. Like Ruth Ruth Bader Ginsburg, there's a beautiful little thirty minute documentary, one of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's last interviews before she died. And one of the things she said that her mother taught her was for her always to act like a lady. Then she defined that as not investing in the emotions that do not move our life forward, like fear, jealousy, and regret. Yeah, it's not productive. It's not productive, right? But once we're in the fear and jealousy and regret, it takes work to get out of it. Once we've been put in that place of fear, once we've been fed and absorbed that fear, it, it takes work. We have to see like we I didn't I didn't know how much fear I had driving my actions when I was at Liam's old school fighting for his education. But we ha- so I had to oh, see when you're in it, it takes it's time so to even hard. realize that you're just spinning your wheels in something. And it was like once I was out of it, I could see, oh, my gosh, all the fear. Now I have these remnants of fears. And now I have to deal with the after effects of fear or I continue to live with those fears. Like so it's a, it's a whole process. That's the thing is that we see that now we're given the ability to see the difference and to make a change. You know, I look back at some of the fights or thoughts that I was subjected to 13 years ago, and some of them are now rejected by society as a whole. The R word for the most part, like 85% of society knows that that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. There's another part of it that knows it's believed to be a bad thing, but refuses to, 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 That's the to support slow. that. The change is slow. <laughs> I think about how inclusion and diversity are words that have found their way into the mainstream. And, and we don't have to be the first ones to speak them. I remember learning the words inclusive classroom because the only word I knew was mainstream. And mainstream and inclusion are two totally different things. But I didn't know. I had to learn them. And now we know the difference we know what inclusion is. An inclusive classroom was not something that I ever heard until Liam was going to enter into the school system. It wasn't inclusion for Sophia. It was school. It was going to school. She didn't have to fight or know that she wanted the least restrictive environment. That was just given to her. They looked at her and said, mm, okay. It was just inclusion since Sophia was not on anybody's radar of inequality they saw her as equal they the school system inclusion was a word that we had to learn and then we had to fight for and we fought but today I look at this next generation coming up and inclusion is out there inclusion is how this generation is being brought up. And I look on, even when I look on some of the message boards, that's a word that people ask about. They're, they're knowing. 
And this gives me hope. It gives us so much hope for the parents that are coming into our community. Because now any difference that their child has will have the perspective of the fact that we're all different. I mean, I love millennials and the fact that they have really embraced and shined a light on that. And I remember the fight, like, you know, oh, everybody's it. There was, there was such sarcasm from the older generation of, oh, okay. But I think that's because they don't understand how important embracing differences are. People who don't understand what it's like to have a light shined on your difference doesn't think about it. That's a, that's a luxury they, they have is to not think about it. But now this generation, they have the perspective that we're all different. So, you know, we're all different. Any support or accommodation their child will need will have the insight that we all have supports and accommodations in our life. All of us. Every single one of us, I can name so many from just this morning. I put on my glasses so that I could read. I need to have a plan that's organized. I need a quieter space to think and do my work. I need a little bit of extra time. I need my assignments at hand in my hand so I can reread. The, I need that tangible because that's how my brain can process better with tangible where I can look back instead of digital, that makes it a little bit harder. I, I think now apps, you can actually underline and highlight on a digital, which is brilliant. But this is how I absorb information and process my day in a better way that helps me to access my life. And you can take that and turn it into accommodations for your child so that they can access their curriculum. And it's not any different. But for some reason, when we first entered into the school system, it was presented to us like this, oh, well, this is a big thing. And with such negativity and judgment and shame. And I do believe that the generations coming through now are not subscribing to that shame that is being handed down. I believe that they're, they have the wisdom uh, and the insight to see it for what it is and the courage to make those changes across the board. Well, I've always thought, you know, a crosswalks, like, go signal that, like, walking person, white walking person, lasts just, like, whatever the typical length of time it would take for someone across the street. But if someone needed more time, like an older person with a walker or a parent pushing a stroller or something, and that walk sign then became the red hand that says stop, and then you get the green light and you can cross. Legally, you could cross in. You're not just going to run people over. Can you accommodate those people? And you say, have a little bit more time to get across the street. That's a really good point because you're not going to run them over because the law says you cannot run that person over. They had to make a over. law about it. And the violation of, of your IEP, guess what? Mm -hmm. That's against the law too. Yeah. It's the law that this child needs to be educated. But you can't just run through them. And here's the thing is that it's not just old people or, or parents with strollers. I ran a marathon and the next day I needed more time in that crosswalk. Mm -hmm. I was able-bodied, but when I ran a marathon, my legs were tight and I was in pain and I needed more time. We all need those accommodations. It is not just for this one group. And if as a society, 
we can just embrace that and quit making people feel bad or trying to project fear onto them, we're going to be better off. And I think that that is, that's what I see. Like, that is what I see in this next generation. That's what I see when we speak to some of our guests that are creating these new pathways and fighting for these new laws and research and empathy and all of these beautiful things that are coming from that inclusive mindset. So I have hope that when a parent receives a diagnosis, that there's going to be accurate information out there for them to access. And that the information is going to be real facts as to what the existence of that extra chromosome means, along with a list, that list that I was given, which I hope is getting shorter as they wean out the inaccurate descriptions. But I am hopeful that whatever list there is, is accompanied by a list of supports that can be requested. And I, I hope it's for every child, every child that is born. I, I, I'm hopeful that eventually there will be a new picture that pops up on WebMD and your Google search. When you Google Down syndrome, you get that pencil sketch drawing that mm. is yeah. just inappropriate and the description of Down syndrome, which is inaccurate. I'm hopeful that that's going to change. It, it needs to because it's, it needs a, to. it's a trusted thing. I mean, we've put Google searches and AI in such a, a place that when people do search something, it's like when they add up two really long numbers on their calculator and press equal sign, they no doubtedly 100% think that's the answer. Mm -hmm. And in your calculator, it usually is, but it's not the same thing when you Google something that's not the general picture of someone with Down syndrome. When was those that picture drawn, right? I know. And those aren't the accurate descriptions of, of it. But but people follow that. I mean, I just recently heard a podcast about, you know, AI stuff, but just the trust we have in authorities. And we've come to trust software and stuff so much that there was a study showing how we trust so much. And there was this robot dog that was going to lead everyone out of a building when it was on fire. And so you were trust you trusted that this dog was going the place it was supposed to go. So everybody followed it, passing up exits that you could look through the, the glass door and see there's a, a green lawn right there that you could just be out of the building, but continuing to follow this robot up and down stairs and just doing circles. And they continued to follow this dog. Now it was a study, so no one was in danger, but we had just put our trust in that thing that we trust and just followed blindlessly like, like lemmings, really. And so I think we do that with doctors of the past, with researchers. And I'm going to say at the beginning, we do that, you know, until, until you we know, did. until you realize, oh, there's, there's a lawn right there. There's a beautiful yeah, full we lawn. Can exit right here, guys. Yeah, right? we, can, we can take our own path. Mm-hmm. We can be sitting out in the sun instead of just in a smoke filled room because someone's telling us that that's where we're supposed to sit. That might be why change is so hard. Yeah, I I mean, it's so much. It's so much that we're not necessarily programmed to question everything and do. But the new generation, this next generation that's coming behind us, they are. They are questioning things. They are standing up against ridicule. I think that's why I'm hopeful. I mean, I think every generation, because there's that progression and the evolution of humanity, but in this community, I mean, this, this is a fight that was actually created, as we know, and, you know, at the start of the industrial 
revolution. Before that, people with differences, people with learning differences or physical challenges, you know, that was my son, just like there's my daughter and this is who she is. And that was accepted. And they were part of the community. They were part of the community, uh, just like everyone. And that's who they were. And they found their place. Watch Ted Green's documentary that talks about how the Industrial Revolution planted these seeds and made these laws and did all these horrible things. That that's the stuff that we're repeating. That's the stuff that we're taking as fact. That is fear-based. And that is why the challenges that we're given are based in fear and meant to insinuate fear because that was the plan a very long time ago. And that is how they got parents to, you know, just give their children up to institutions. So we, there's change. We have the information now. Now we can make those changes. We can say, oh, Maya Angelou said, when we know better, we do better. And it is one of my favorite quotes because when we know better, when we have the information and we understand where something came from and we know that it, it wasn't meant to do any good, that it was based in fear, that it was propagating misperceptions for an ulterior motive. When we know better, we do better. So when we have that information, we can decide that we're not going to support that. We're not going to support how they continue to pass down misperceptions of our children. We are going to change those. And we have, we have been changing them. We're not going to accept a school who says they're not going to educate our child and they're going to break the law. We're just not going to accept it. People fought for those laws. 504, that was fought for. Idea? People gave their blood, sweat, and tears. Just like all change across the board. Idea is a law. Know it. Connect with your advocates. Connect with the special education department in your district. Connect with your Down syndrome support groups. Know what those laws are and tell others and don't accept it when people try to tell you or try to just violate those laws. I'm hopeful that the law is now readily available and it's in so many conversations. We didn't know 13 years ago, but I'm hopeful that it's in so many conversations, so many stories out there that it's readily available when it comes to education and parents understand that an equal education is not a favor that someone is going to do for you, but it is a civil right. It is your child's civil right. And they have the right to an inclusive classroom, the least restrictive environment. They have a right to the supports they need to access their curriculum. And you have the right to ask for those supports. So think about the supports you need. Look at where your child is and think, what could I give them to support them? It could be a fatter pencil. It could be a triangle shaped crayon. It is fewer uh, words on a spelling list. It is fewer math problems. It is a squishy on their seat. It is more time to finish a test. It is their BII and BID support because sometimes behaviors can be a challenge, not for your child to be inclusive, 
but for them to access their work. So they don't have to be removed from the classroom. They just need to support in the classroom. And you look around that classroom, every child needs support, mm-hmm. especially in elementary school. I think our son was the most well-behaved Like before COVID. Third, we got to third grade. He was always the most well-behaved. On the accommodation list, calculator. Calculator for math, people. Yep, we've talked about that. And there's episodes about accommodations and, and all of those things. But those are your child's rights, and they're not a favor. And if they're going to fight you on it, then you can ask them to put it in writing why. So that way you can then contact your district and file a complaint saying that your school doesn't abide by the laws and violates your child's rights. I have hope that parents understand what an IEP is. It is a legal binding document. And I have hope that we will hold our schools accountable. And when we hold them accountable, we know that it's not asking for something extra. We do it in honor of everybody who came before us and everybody who fought for those laws to be in place. And with the memory of the day that our children were not even educated. Our children weren't even given the surgeries to to live. So think about that when you think, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be a squeaky wheel. You're not being a squeaky wheel. And those people who fought for these things for you, for our kids, for society as a whole, to make it better, we honor them. I am hopeful that our children will be seen as equal in a society where we are all equal. But at the foundation of that hope is my hope that they will be seen as equal through our own eyes, that we know that they are equal. Because the truth is, sometimes it's really hard to silence all the noise and the garbage that's thrown at you and to not let that garbage and those lies settle in some dark place. Because sometimes the fight takes its toll and asking that same question and fighting for that same thing over and over again can cause us to doubt. But I'm I'm hopeful for the change and the generation that comes behind us. I hope that one day somebody hears our journey and is in disbelief of the archaic thoughts that we might have, that maybe we talk about, make sure you fight for those supports or make sure that they stay in the classroom and that those people look at us and that, of course. Yeah. And and finds that totally ridiculous. You know, like, like every other restriction that any marginalized group has ever come up against that it's unfathomable, that it's so in the past, total history, that there's no need for an advocacy podcast even, or a, or parts of those support groups. That it's a different advocacy, because I think we always advocate to make the world better, but maybe the advocacies are based more in love and not fear. I hope we're free from unnecessary fears. And that we're afforded the luxury of, of being present and enjoying our child. That's something that, that seems to really get robbed with the diagnosis. I'm hopeful that professionals coming up in the world have experienced inclusion and, and, and had some experience with someone with Down syndrome in their life in a real way. And that they also move forward 
changing the narrative. I'm hopeful for the families and friends of parents whose child receives a diagnosis today. That their starting point is way ahead, light years ahead of what our starting point was. That their support system is strong. That their questions can be answered. That they never hear the R word. That part of this journey doesn't include those archaic beliefs that some older generations might have spoke to us about when they heard our child had Down syndrome. It goes back to when you said the hope of, at the very least, parents see the equality. Because that's where it starts, in the home. And your child's going to have such a better foundation. If at least in the home, the thought of is equal. And you go on with that intent and that confidence out into the world and just demand that that's accepted. Celebrating our children every moment and every step of the way. I'm hopeful that there are enough examples in the education system of our children succeeding in reaching their goals, in exceeding their goals in education and in life that no parent has to sit at a meeting and be told that they don't need to worry about education or that their child's ability is any less. I have hope that we do not have to spend our lives proving ourselves and our worth. And the new generation, the new inclusive generation, supporting all differences as one connected world community. That inclusion moves the dial. Everyone seen as a gift. Everyone heard. Everyone at the table. Creating the world that we want to live in and making the change that we want to see. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, If We Knew Then.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Oh,